You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2, Habakkuk chapter 2, and uh, as you are turning there, um, let me just again say a very big um, thank you to all of you for uh, praying for us uh, as a family, praying uh, specifically as I received many uh, texts and phone calls, um, praying specifically last Monday, uh, as we celebrated my grandmother's life, um, and uh, sensed your prayers even as I uh, preached the message there, and um, one of the most difficult things that I have ever done, and yet I'm thankful that we have a church family um, that I know I can I can depend on to continue to pray for us, and and you've done that, and you've in so many ways reached out and encouraged, and uh, we just want to say thank you. My parents would say thank you um, for all that that you've done and all the encouragement that you've been um, both to to us and to them, um, and, and we're thankful. Um, and so I, I come this morning to bring you God's word um, very humbly, knowing that um, it is. It is by His Spirit alone that we are sustained. Um, and I'm thankful for that. So Habakkuk chapter 2, uh, what do we do in this America? As Robert just prayed a few moments ago, what do we do in an America like this when everything is in turmoil? 
And we've seen again and again from the prophet Habakkuk uh, that we continue to serve the Lord, that he has given a vision to us and we want to continue to serve the Lord together in that vision and wait patiently for God to bring it to pass. And some days that seems like it's a long time, uh, like it will never come. Uh, But even when it tarries, we are to continue to serve the Lord patiently. And in doing that, it means that we've got to deal with some specific things in our life, some specific uh, sinful tendencies, both in the culture in which we live and in our lives. And so as we've been walking through Habakkuk chapter 2, we've seen some very specific things. And remember, there are several purposes, three to be exact, for these things in the book of Habakkuk. There are three different purposes. Yes, to look at the culture and to deal with these things in the culture, but even to deal with them in our own lives. Because whether we choose to admit that that these things are present in our lives, in some sense they are, uh, whether we admit them or not, and we need to be convicted. And the Bible very clearly says, woe to these particular lifestyles. So in this, we want to call out on the authority of God's Word these sinful tendencies within the lives of people, within the lives of mankind, the culture, and in our own lives. So we find the last woe of the passage. Some of you are going, man, I'm so glad we're finished with chapter 2. But at any rate, we're going to finish that this morning. If you found uh, your place in God's Word, let me invite you to stand with me as we give honor to its reading. Habakkuk chapter 2, begin with me in verse 18. The Bible says, What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation, which he makes speechless uh, when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Pray with me. Jesus, we thank You again for Your Word. We pray this morning that You would open our eyes to see and our ears to hear what is here. I pray that by Your Spirit it would be implanted in our hearts. God, that it would find application there because even though we read a passage about a distant culture 2,600 years ago or more. God, we find ourselves even in this text and the tendencies of our own heart are laid bare before You. And so we pray this morning for conviction. We pray that You would rid us of the idolatry of our own heart and that You would make Jesus first and supreme and preeminent there on the throne of our heart. God, help us by Your grace to see clearly and to love Jesus fully. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So this is the fifth and final woe. We talked about the word woe a couple of different times. You may recall, hopefully, uh, that it is a word of lament and judgment. And so in this passage, we see yet again in verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, 
awake to a silent stone arise. This is the woe of the passage. Now, unlike the other four woes in the passages that we've seen so far, the final woe is structured a little bit differently. The taunt toward the nations that is given in the passage actually comes before the statement of lament. So the taunt begins in verse 18 before verse 19. And I think that it's structured that way intentionally. Some have have argued that maybe this passage was not arranged correctly in some of its some of its uh, copies as it went through uh, person after person in the nation of Israel. And yet we find no evidence of that. It seems to me that Habakkuk wants to wants to jump very quickly into this particular issue within the life of Babylon and in the life of Israel. It's. It's almost like he can't wait to jump off into this issue. There's a sense of urgency that this particular thing is of utmost importance. It would seem that the wrath of God burns most uh, hotly against the, uh, this particular issue in the nation of Israel and in Babylon. The contrast is made very plain, and we don't see this contrast as starkly in the rest of the passages, but verse 20 says, but the Lord is in His holy temple, as if to turn our eyes away from these idols, these wooden things, these metal statues, to the one true and living God. And in doing that, to recognize His holiness. The holiness of the Lord. But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. And this is the plea of God's Word to every people in every place at every time. That everyone would worship only the true and living God. And it is the plea of this passage. And it teaches us that God is jealous He is jealous for the purity of our worship. Not just our worship, but the worship of every people's, but certainly the people of God. He is jealous that He would remain first and supreme and the only object of our worship. That we would be pure, remain pure, and not give ourselves to idols, not sacrifice the worship of God in the highest and greatest and fullest ways that it should be given. That we would not turn aside from those things, but with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength, that Jesus would be worshipped as He is worthy of. It's true of Babylon. It's true of the remnant here in Israel. And it's certainly true of us. The praise of all peoples is the only thing that God will settle for. We may live in a land of so-called religious freedom, as I said a few moments ago, and there may be a call right now for unity of all religions, for tolerance and all of those things, but there is one and only true and living God, and He is the God of the Bible, and He rightly demands to be worshipped alone. Listen to the call of Psalm 96. We, we read this often in terms of worship in this, in this context of the public gathering. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. 
Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day, declare His work among, or His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. I I love that passage, right? It's a call to declare the glory of God. But listen as, listen as the psalmist goes on in verse 4. For great is the Lord. Why do we even do that? Why would we come together and worship the Lord with all of our hearts. Why would we do that? Verse 4 says, Because, or for, great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. In other words, He's worthy of it. Amen? He's worthy of our praise. No matter if we have five people gathered here, or five hundred people gathered here, or no matter if there's just five people left in the Funiac Springs, or in the United States of America that worship the Lord, or five million people who worship the Lord, He is always worthy of our praise, and that remains unchanged. But not just worshiping God plus or amidst all the other gods. It says He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Verse 9 says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. We'll talk more about what that means in a moment. Tremble before Him all the earth. So we think about one of the most beloved portions of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6. We love this. We quote it often. It says, Hear, O Israel... Before it ever tells us to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, listen to what it says. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And as a result of His oneness, His holiness, His being God alone, that's what drives Him to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might. Jesus, of course, taught this same passage in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 22. Deuteronomy 6 goes on to say, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods. The gods of the peoples who are around you. This is, by the way, just before the people of God entered into the promised land. He is reading to them the law, reminding them of what He's called them to do. And He says, even as you go out amidst the gods of the culture... He says, you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you, for the Lord your God is in your midst. This God is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and He destroy you from the face of the earth. God has always been jealous for the worship of His name because He's God alone. And this has always been the call of His people. To worship Him and to worship Him alone. That's the landing point of chapter 2. The holiness, the uniqueness, the glory, the deservedness of God for the worship of all peoples. Verse 20, that's exactly what is said. But the Lord. The contrast is not just with what comes before it, but with the entire previous section of woes. In fact, that begins, if you'll turn back just a couple of verses, maybe one page in your Bible, chapter 2 and verse 4, you'll remember the contrast began there. Behold, describing the nations, describing Babylon, describing the ungodly among Israel, he says, his soul is puffed up 
It is not upright within him. He says, but the righteous shall live by faith. And he goes on to describe all of those who are arrogant and are puffed up against the Lord. All of these woes only to land in verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Meaning, meaning that he is set apart. This temple imagery brings such clarity to the picture here. Of course, it would be the temple of the Old Testament. We know that there was a temple there and they were to build this temple as a place of worship to the Lord, the holiest place being in the midst. But even that was a symbol, right, of the temple of the Lord being the heavens. All of the earth is his temple, his dwelling place. God dwells with us. The fact that He alone is holy in the midst of this, there is a set-apartness that makes Him separate from His creation. That makes Him separate from all of the sinfulness of man. That makes it separate from all other gods. And not just separate, but utterly above all other gods. This is what it means for Him to be holy. He's set apart. There's two Primary ideas contained in this picture of holiness that the Lord is in His holy temple. The first would be moral purity. Absolute moral purity. There's nothing that God does that is evil or sinful or inappropriate. There's nothing that God does that is bad. Everything He does is good and perfect and wise and holy. There's no sin in God. He is light and in Him there is no darkness at all, 1 John says. So it's absolute moral purity. But the other side of this is His utter uniqueness. Because we're called to be holy as He is holy. We're to reflect His moral purity, yet we can never be utterly unique. God alone is God. That is the truth, the reality, that drives the command in the second half of verse 20. The fact that He's totally morally pure and He's utterly unique. There is no no one like Him. If that's true, then He must be worshipped alone. Because no one else is worthy of the worship that He alone deserves. The only proper response is what verse 20 says, that all the earth would keep silent before Him. And I, I love this. Any of you know what an onomatopoeia is anybody remember that from english anybody at all maybe some of you okay it's a word that sounds like what it actually means right this word in the hebrew this keeping silent is actually a word that sounds like what it means it's a it's the equivalent in our english might be the word hush when the holiness of god is realized all the earth goes silent because of who God is. This is His worthiness, His holiness. It's not even words to describe. Even the angels cover themselves because of the holiness of our God. He's worthy. 
And it's not enough that just the faithful in Israel, the small remnant in Israel recognize that holiness. All of Israel must recognize that holiness. Babylon, who worships idols, must recognize that holiness. The nations around them should recognize that holiness. All peoples in every place, in every time, must recognize and bow the knee before the holiness of our God. And all nations and all people at all times are silent before the holiness of our God. This is who He is. Perhaps we don't spend enough time talking about the holiness of God. Often we want to run to His love. And God is love. Amen? Are you thankful for that this morning? That our God loves us? He is. When we talk about God's love, we think typically about Loving us no matter what. His unconditional love toward us. And that would be true. But generally, oftentimes, when we think about His love and we describe His love in these terms, we're often tempted and very have a very strong tendency to lean toward this love that is centered on us. Where everything about us must be lovable. This is the heart of many debates in our nation right now who would call many things Christian, would lay aside any sense of moral purity and would say, this is, this is a loving God. How could, how could God be any other way? God loves me just how I am. But the, the problem is that that sets aside the holiness of our God. To, to set aside moral purity for the sake of God's love is to, to describe a God who is not God at all. It's to make an idol. It looks nothing like the God of the Bible. For in fact, if God is loving, He must be holy in His love. He must be pure in His love. The only God who is worthy of our praise is the One who is pure and holy. And we don't spend enough time talking about His holiness. How might the holiness of God impact your approach to the Gospel? The fact that you and I are sinners. And if, if we were to receive what we deserve from God because of His perfect holiness, it would be His eternal wrath. And yet, He poured that out on Christ on, in our place. On our behalf, so that we might be set free from the wrath of God and so that we might do exactly what we read about in Hebrews chapter 19, come immediately into the presence of a holy God without fear of judgment. That we might come and know Him even in His holiness so that we might do what Psalm 96 says and worship the Lord in the beauty of His holiness. This is an amazing thought. If we were to spend time in the holiness of God, how might it affect our approach in prayer? We wouldn't come to the Lord flippantly with just simply a prayer before a meal, although that's important, or just simply a time of prayer because we're in trouble and we need some help. But we would come before the Lord recognizing that we get, oh, that we get to speak to the God of heaven. And the only way that's even possible is because Jesus has forgiven our sin and His blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That changes the way you pray, church. Or how might it affect the way that we worship? Oh, how many times we come and gather together, whether personally or in corporate gatherings, we gather together and 
And I'm guilty, you're guilty, we're we're guilty of coming and, and never even actually encountering God. Just simply going through the motions, but singing some familiar songs, listening to a message, but have we ever really met with God? And the Bible says that God dwells among His people, that we are His temple, His dwelling place, and we worship Him in spirit and in truth. What an opportunity! And that's only possible because we stand in His holiness on the Gospel. The fact that you get to come and meet with the God of heaven among people who love Him. It's an amazing thing when we recognize the holiness of God. We're driven to obedience. We're driven to mission. Everything changes. Everything changes when we realize who God is. Well, why land there? Why would Habakkuk land there at the end in verse 20? Why is this so important? Well, this is the end of all things primarily. It's where it all lands. God is the one who's the center of the universe. He's the one who is to be praised and will be worshipped for all of eternity. That's a big reason. And that's reason enough. Amen? It's reason enough to land there. But more specifically in the context... Babylon was so set against him. They had such brazen pride, self-sufficiency and idolatry. They failed to even acknowledge who God was or that he even existed, much less submit their lives to his holiness. There was in them what Romans says, there was no fear of God in their eyes. In verse 4, we read already, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. And this is the outflow. And all of these woes are intended to bring them down from their pride and ultimate idolatry. Similar to America. Everyone around us doing what is right in their own eyes and no fear of God before their eyes. The fact is, it can be in the church if we're not careful. But certainly it's in the culture. Now again, we need to define our terms, right? What is an idol? What does it mean for something to be idolatry? So certainly we could define that religiously, couldn't we? A false god, right? There are many of them around us in the days of Babylon. Babylon trusted in its many gods. They were a pantheistic nation. Literally, idols of their own making, the Bible says here. You'll remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Do you remember the story? Daniel, you probably heard it growing up, right? Nebuchadnezzar makes this this idol out in the middle and everyone is to bow. And of course, Daniel refuses to bow. This is the culture of Babylon. You fast forward to the Greco-Roman age and its Greek mythology, Zeus, Diana, Aphrodite, and so on. Emperor worship, worshiping political leaders in the day. You fast forward into the church age. There's some overlap there, but even the apostles, they tried to make the apostles gods, if you'll remember. Later on, the Pope himself, amidst the church, becomes a god to the people. The saints, various saints, become gods. In the modern period, Allah is an idol. Buddha is an idol. Vishnu is an idol, and we could go on and on and on. Joseph Smith is an idol. We make idols religiously. But again, the question is, who is the idolater? Who exactly is it that gives their lives to this idol worship? And we need to be careful 
Because I think when we think about the subject of idolatry, we're tempted to think about statues, right? And none of us would say that we have a statue in our house of someone who we worship. But how easily and how quickly we can fall into softer forms of idolatry. Let me tell you what I mean. It's entirely possible for the things that we've done for such a long time that are good things, that are memorable things and helpful things that we call traditions to actually become less traditional and more idolatrous. When we refuse to give them up for the sake of being obedient to God's Word and His mission, it becomes an idol. Material possessions, things that we love so dear and that God has blessed us with and we pray and thank the Lord for all the things that He's blessed us with, right? And we know that every good and perfect thing comes from above. Every good and perfect gift is from God. And yet it's entirely possible for material possessions to become idols. Athletes or athletics. We are so guilty of worshiping Athletics in our country. In fact, we pay our athletic pastors a ton who lead us in worshiping the sports. Politicians, that one, that one stings. Many Christians I talked to who believed that one political leader or another political leader were the Savior. We were going to lead America back to greatness again. Be it of one party or the other, it doesn't matter. But there is only one Savior. His name is Jesus. Hobbies. Entertainment. Media, be it social media, Netflix, phones, technology. Our kids even can become our idol. The most subtle form of idolatry is not the statues that we see in the Old Testament, but the good things that we begin to worship as God's. When we take good things and make them gods, it is absolutely idolatry. In fact, this is what Romans 1 describes. When it says that we by nature have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Verse 25 says, because they or we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. It's the very definition biblically of idolatry. Romans chapter 1, 21 and following. Questions you might think about. How do I know, Pastor, if, I'm, if I've got an idol in my life? Let me ask you some questions. What receives the deepest affections of your heart? What is it that you love? What consumes the majority of your time? What dominates your thought life? What are you consumed with thinking about all day long? When you're, you're by yourself and you're quiet, nothing else is going on. That's what your thoughts are drawn to constantly. What is it in your life that ultimately prevents you from fully obeying Jesus? I, I would do more for the gospel, but this. I would do more for Jesus, but this. Yes, I know Jesus, you've called me to this, but this. What is that? It's your idol. And even more than that, there's one more very subtle form of idolatry that you may or may not have thought of. Because it's not just the things taking the place of Jesus in an obvious physical sense. 
But perhaps Jesus not being in the place that He deserves to be because of something else going on in our life. Think about the nation of Israel and what's about to take place for them. Babylon coming against them. And there's a very important word here. It says in the middle of verse 18, for its maker trusts in his own creation. One of the very foundations of worshiping the Lord is trusting him. Listen to what Psalm 46 and verse 10 says. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The same stillness or silence of verse 20 is picked up here with the idea of worship and reminding us even when the nations rage around us. By the way, Psalm 46 describing that. Even when the mountains fall off into the sea, God's our refuge, our strength, our tower. And so we, even when Babylon is is coming against God's people to judge them, we the faithful in the midst of the perverse culture must be reminded of the need to be still and know that that He is God. And there's something about the worship of God that drives us to that. It's interesting that when Jesus talks about worry and anxiety in Matthew chapter 6, that He makes it a worship issue. You see, not to trust God is actually the very heart of idolatry. And we're in danger of being idolatrous even in our lack of trust. You say, where is there hope for anyone then? Well, Habakkuk gives us four warnings that we're going to look at very quickly with the time that we have left this morning. Four very clear warnings about the danger of trusting idols, be it God's, the good things we turn into God's, or even our lack of trust in God. Be careful Habakkuk says, he says, number one, our idols are egocentric. They're egocentric. What do I mean by that? Verse 18, its maker has shaped it a metal image. We are the ones who create our own God. Here the text says, its maker trusts in his own creation. So what the, what the idolater does is he takes and makes his own idol. He says, I, I'm going to make this thing with my own strength, my own power. I'm going to put it out here and this is what I'm going to worship. This is what I love. This is what I'm going to give my life to. This is what I'm going to serve. This is the object of my worship. It's ironic, isn't it? Because God made us and said, worship me. But we make things and say, we'll worship you. It makes no sense at all. Of course, if God is the creator of the whole world, He is deserving of our worship. The problem is, anytime we engage in idolatry, we engage in man-centered worship. We're not worshiping the things we say we worship ultimately. We're worshiping ourselves. This is why it is so incredibly important in the midst of worship that we talk about worship being God-centered and not man-centered. Because even in our gathering, if our worship becomes man-centered, then we might sing and it might look a whole lot like worshiping Jesus, but it's not worshiping anything else but ourselves. Our worship's not about us. Newsflash, we are not the center of God's universe. 
God is the center of his universe. It is a God-centered reality that we live in. And in all of the ways we described, it's entirely possible for us to become egocentric and therefore idolatrous in our worship. And he says, be careful. Be careful. Secondly, he says that our idols are truthless. So we go to the Lord for truth. We come to His Word. We want to know what His Word says so that we might be instructed, know how to live, know what truth is, know what we can depend upon. And yet we come here to verse 18 and the picture of idolatry is that they are the the, the idols that we serve made by human hands are teachers of lies. Teachers of lies. We trust them. We trust them. I can't even teach, it says in verse 19. The question is, can this teach? And the, the answer is no. The irony here is because it does not speak or teach. It's silent. Even our idols are silent before the Lord and yet we look to them for instruction. They're dumb. They have no ability to guide, no ability to correct, no ability to impart wisdom. And yet we submit ourselves to them. We learn from them. We look for our wisdom in them. We're corrected by them. We reject ultimate truth and get our truth from these idols. Be it another God in the culture or if just simply submitting our lives and aligning our lives around these idols that we make a part of our worship. I'll never forget the first time I ever heard someone talk about the TV being an idol. How many of you even have TVs in your house anymore? Would you, would you ever have thought there had been a day we said that, right? I mean, nobody you watch your phone, right? You don't watch TV anymore. Who needs a TV? Something, right? But I'll never forget the person talking about putting a TV in the house and everything, all the furniture aligned toward that and looking toward that. fact is, many of our lives are aligned around our phones the same way today. I'm not just saying our phone is an idol, although it is. But what I'm saying to you is that we align our lives around the idols that we serve. And they control our lives. They teach us. We are corrected by them. And the danger is that they are truthless. They cannot provide truth. Our emotions when we follow idols are compelled by lies. Our major life decisions when we're led by idols are built on lies. All of our worries and our fears and our concerns whenever we are not trusting and we're building ourselves on idols, then they are rising from lies. Our understanding of the world. It's all lies. Unless we know and worship the one true God. Third, our idols are not only truthless and egocentric, they are powerless. He says the question, what prophet is an idol? And what he's really saying is, let me tell you all the ways that idols are not profitable. And one of those is that its maker trusts in its own creation. There's that word trust again. He trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Trusting. What is trusting? It's hoping and believing and relying on. It assumes ability. It assumes power. That if we're going to trust in that thing, that it's going to provide the peace that we're looking for, the hope that we're looking for, the fulfillment that we're looking for, the the success in life that we're looking for. And the ultimate reality is none of those things, none of our idols can provide ultimate peace, hope, fulfillment or success or anything else because they are powerless. 
Our kids won't make us happy. Our hobbies won't make us happy. The right politician won't make us successful. Athletes are not going to make us happy. None of these things. And worry that dethrones the God of heaven certainly isn't going to make us happy. These things have no power. The only power that they have are the power that we give them over us because we enslave ourselves to these idols. But we've been called to freedom. We've been set free from our idolatry that we might serve the one true and living God who has all power and all authority both in heaven and on earth and who is able to satisfy us for all of eternity, not with something that we might be able to throw away, but with His eternal love. This is the glory of salvation. If we had time, very quickly, I'll just remind you of these two stories. Remember in 1 Samuel chapter 12, the nation of Israel says, we need a king. We need a leader. And Saul for them became an idol. And they learned from their mistake, at least in the temporary, the short term. And Samuel and his departing words said to them in verse, this, this is 1 Samuel 12, 21, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are empty. Isaiah 45. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together the survivors of the nations. This is right after Babylon is defeated. They have no knowledge who carry, their, uh, carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. This is the God of the nations. Number four. Not only are idols egocentric, and truthless and powerless, but they are lifeless. As we approach Easter, I'm thankful that we have a God who is alive. A God who hears me when I call to Him. Amen? A God who has promised to help me and to deliver me and to save me, not because I've done anything, but because of His grace. Verse 19, he says, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake. <laughs> Why are you even speaking to this thing, he says? To a silent stone, arise. You're speaking to a rock. And you're saying, Rock, I need your help. <laughs> you're speaking to an athlete who makes millions of dollars and sitting there and, and saying, I, I, I want to serve this thing. Or you're speaking to kids who, by the way, mess up no matter how perfect you think they are. And you're saying, Arise, wake up, make me happy, bring me peace, give me success. You're speaking to a president who every day falls short of what God has called him to. Much less can he lead you in what God has called you to. All of these things are hopeless and lifeless. Do you remember the story of Elijah there at the top of Mount Carmel? I love this story. After all of their begging and pleading to their God to set this saturated altar on fire, what does Elijah say to them? <laughs> he says, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, he is relieving himself. won't go in there any further on what that means. He is on a journey, maybe he took a trip, or perhaps he is asleep and must be wakened. Can I tell you that no idol of the world can be awakened because our God is the only true and living God worthy of all of our worship. In fact, what these idols of the culture actually do is they suck all the life out of us. And yet they never live. But our God, our God is alive. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus 
born. And He lived the life that you and I could never have lived. A life of perfect obedience. And then Jesus died in my place. The death that I deserved. But on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. Our hope is alive. It's alive. I don't wait on something that's just empty religion. I wait for the coming of my living King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Miss Janet, you and I were just talking about this morning. My grandmother is with Jesus today. She's worshiping. And my singing this morning, I'm just joining in with her as she's worshiping the Lord. Because He lives. He lives. And one day I'm going to see Him face to face. Not because of any life that I've lived, but because of the life Jesus lived for me. He died for me. He rose again. And I've been set free by the Gospel. I hope that you have. I was watching a video last night. I follow some of these modern, famous, whatever you want to call them, leaders in our day, leaders in thinking in the world because I want to know what the world's thinking. I want to know how to engage the world with the gospel and I want to hear the arguments and, and then even take the opportunity to pray for these people who are out in the world. It's just something that I enjoy doing. If you want to do it, you can do it on YouTube. Tread carefully because you can be easily deceived. But with a Bible in one hand and a heart for these people in the other hand, there's a man by the name of Jordan Peterson. If you've never heard uh, anything by Jordan Peterson, you can look him up and spend a lot of time. One of the interesting things about Jordan Peterson is that he is a very deep thinker and he has a very strong commitment to morality, but he's an atheist. I watched a video last night of him having a conversation with another pastor. And Jordan Peterson was having this argument. I think it was a pastor. Jordan Peter, Peterson was having this argument about morality. But he came to this moment when he uttered the words that there's a moment when the narrative, what seems to be the flow of life, touches the objective, what actually is the observable flow of life. And he says, you know, I guess that moment is when the narrative, the design, touches reality. That moment is Christ. And in that moment, Jordan Peterson began to weep. I hope that he's coming to faith in Christ. But to discover that Jesus is alive, that every other idol of the earth is worthless, is to realize that the God of heaven, that eternity has touched the temporal and everything has changed. Would you bow your heads with me all across this room? I I just want to call us. I know the hour is late this morning. I just want to simply call us to unadulterated, unidolatrous worship of a holy God. For some of you in this room or listening online, that might mean this morning that you need to trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Because you've never realized before, you've just lived your life. It's only one life you can live. You only live once. Don't know what's coming next, but it really doesn't matter much. Live this life to the fullest. Give no thought to God. Make much of pleasure. Make much. 
My prayer for you is that you're coming to the place you realize that all of that's empty. That it doesn't fulfill, that it doesn't satisfy, satisfy, and it certainly on the authority of God's Word does not save. And we need saving. So maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Can I call you to repentance? Turn from your idolatry and turn to Christ. Because we have one and only one God. And He's given one and only one Savior. And by His Spirit, He's leading your heart right now to trust Him for salvation. So if that's you, in just a few moments, we're going to stand in this room. You've joined us online or you're here in this room. I want you to just take the opportunity in a few moments to respond to God. Turn to Him in obedience. If you're here in this room, that would mean step out of the place where you're standing. Come down to this altar Say today, Pastor, today I want to know Jesus. I want to turn from my idolatry and turn and worship the one true and living God. Can you help me? I can show you what it means to be saved, how the Bible calls us to repent and believe the gospel, and the fact that God will save you today if you'll call out to Him. If you're joining us online, just simply write where you're at. And I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what your struggle was when you woke up this morning, but I know you need Jesus. And if you'd cry out to Him, the Bible says that every, every single mouth that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So would you do that right there in your living room this morning? Wherever you're at, would you trust in Christ? Believer in this room, believer who's listening in, we're all guilty of idolatry. Would you lay down your idols this morning? Whatever it is that you're trusting, would you lay it down this morning in order to serve the one true and living God more fully? With every head bowed, every eye closed, would you stand with me all across this room as we give honor to this time, as we submit our lives to the Lord? I'm going to pray. This altar is going to be open. You come this morning. Lord Jesus, have Your way in our hearts. Make Yourself the One who is seated on the throne of our hearts. And we submit ourselves to You now. In Jesus' name, Amen. The altar is open. You come this morning. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.